Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. Merry Christmas, listeners, and uh, Tim. It's Christmas season. Welcome to December. Yeah. Finally get our first uh, dash of snow. Yeah, we do have some snow here in, uh, you know, one of the more southern parts of Canada. It's a little slushy, I'd say. It's not maybe my favorite quality of snow, but if there's got to be snow on the ground, this is the time of the year that I'm 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 good for it because it helps you get in the mood for the season, I'd say. I agree. Yeah, it can kind of, yeah. you know, it can go away in January and I'd be okay with it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love an extended spring that starts in January, but more and more often, at least where we are, you get a winter that sort of extends into April and maybe even the first week of May if you're particularly unlucky. So I don't know. We'll see what we get this year. Yeah, you know, I'll take the delayed winter because we had a lovely fall. It was pretty mild and warm mm-hmm. even some weekends up until now. So it's been nice. But I'm ready for Christmas season and kind of been doing the Christmas gift stuff and figuring Mm -hmm. out plans, doing all that shenanigans around the holiday season, which I'm trying to get ahead of early so it's not as stressful this year. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, do you recently you um, in our in our latest roundup on the Instagram, you mentioned that you you had watched a, a, a Christmas movie that seems to be a part of a tradition for you. Um, what can you tell us what that was? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's gonna be my newest tradition. So I've done it two out of the past three years. Last year it was just too crazy around the holidays for me. But um, two years ago I started the tradition with uh, with my boss actually, and then a uh, guest of the show, Bunny Stevenson. Mm-hmm. We started doing uh, Eyes Wide Shut to kind of kick off the holiday movie season, and uh, we did that again this year. And I gotta say that's the way to do it, man. Every year, eyes it's wide shut. It's a really shut. heartwarming movie. Yes, you know? <laughs> it really is. It, there's no movie that has more Christmas trees than that movie, and so many Christmas lights, right? Yes. And so well, well tuned and um, well used lighting. This is, of course, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. So I know the lighting is going to be on point. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of like lush interior, massive New York apartments that have like twinkle lights uh like warm white lights or colored lights there is a real like sort of just vibe of christmas even though the rest of the vibes of the movie are horrific and sort of like an extended panic attack yeah roiling beneath the surface as as a, a man realizes that everything he assumed about his life and about his relationship with his wife maybe isn't the case exactly and having the backdrop kind of set on as christmas time and the fact that the movie only takes place over 48 hours ish kind of makes it a really plausible christmas movie because obviously it happens really close to christmas time and everything is just Mm -hmm. done to me well partially because he was hiding the fact he didn't want to leave london england so everything is made to look like new york city (laughs) with the christmas lighting but it's obviously just a studio in london Mm-hmm. Point being, yeah, it's no, a great no. Christmas so when movie. I when I when I shared that, yeah, when I shared that watch with the uh, with the the uh, followers on Instagram, uh, someone responded in there because I I'd mentioned that you know this, uh, it's the right season for Eyes Wide Shut for the Green Knight, which we've done in the past on the uh, on the podcast yeah. as a Christmas movie. That's a great Christmas. Um, one. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Really, almost any Shane Black movie, he likes setting them around Christmas, whether that's. Yep. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or Nice Guys or even Iron Man 3. Uh, he gives that little Christmas feel because he wanted to. 
Um, and someone replied and they said, we watch um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Hateful Eight because they think oh. like Christmas movies to us. So like, that's a good one. It's really like we're really expanding into like winter movies, but there yes. is just something where like really in like the non in the. I don't know, like the pagan tradition of the holiday, which is basically just like it's cold outside, so let's get together inside, regardless of whether you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or Festival of Lights or something else, so you don't recognize any of them. Something like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is just like it's cold outside, let's stay inside and watch like an extremely harrowing movie about um, you know, men who hate women as as it went by its original title. Yeah, uh very seasonal. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it is um, such a cold movie, though. <laughs> I, and I know we will have to do our we'll have to do an episode on Dragon Tattoo at some point. So we'll get into that way more in depth. Yeah. But I don't think any movie makes me feel as cold as that movie does. And The Hateful Eight would be a really close runner up. So, you know what? I think that's mm-hmm. those are great winter choices. Christmas movies, I could go either way on them. But winter movies, absolutely. I don't need to watch too many Christmas Dude. movies. So I'll take a lot of winter movies. Yeah, yeah, there are very few Christmas movies that I think, like, I probably like objectively because I think they're good movies. A lot of them are like, I've watched this every year since I was a kid, right? And, like, we've talked about some of the best ones already, and we're going to talk about some more today. Um, but, yeah, before we do, just to, just to mention the other thing about the season right now is that, like, we're really hitting, like, the stride for... Uh, big contenders for movies of the year. Obviously, this is your award season. If you want a movie to really benefit from that recency bias uh, in critics' minds and in voters' minds, you put it out in November, December. Um, everyone's staying inside more. They're going to theaters more, things like that. So the theaters have a lot to offer right now, so much that so that even like, you know, Tay and I weren't able to go catch Napoleon like we wanted to. Uh, I know we're fans of Ridley Scott. We've heard very mixed things about the movie. I still wanted to see it on a big screen. Yeah, but me too. Me too. I truly just ran out of time to catch that one. I was also interested in catching Saltburn, which is Emerald Fennel's second movie. She did Promising Young Woman. Yeah. Um, again, very mixed things about it, but I was interested in catching it. I it if if only because it's an original work by someone who's looks like they're sort of trying to move into that auteur space and like you know if you see one of fennel's movies you know it's one of fennel's movies and sort of see what that pattern is but that's one i'll probably have to wait and catch it at home yeah me too i did i did make a a concerted effort and actually went to the tiff uh bell lightbox theater in downtown toronto for the first time yeah Um, surprisingly to to catch uh maestro which is bradley cooper's Starring, written, directed, produced, yada, 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 like he likes being a multi-hyphenate these days. Uh, his biopic on Leonard Bernstein, um, are arguably the, the greatest American conductor of all time and also a very, very accomplished composer. He wrote the music for West Side Story. He wrote a beautiful mass setting. Um, very talented guy. And uh, it was, I would definitely recommend seeing it if you can in a good theater because it's extremely well produced. Um, I will say, uh, not to take the wind out of its sails, I don't really know what the movie was trying to say. Um, yeah. Other that was than kind just of the takeaway you gave me. And it didn't even right have away. like that. It was, it was more interesting. Like, I, uh, in general, I can't stand music biopics because they, they are very formulaic and they don't really have much to say in of themselves other than just like we're kind of documenting this person's life. This was more, this was less conventional than that. But I still, at the end, uh, me and and the the friend who came to see it with me, we were both just kind of like, I don't know what 
they were trying to achieve, but it was great to look at. The acting was phenomenal. The effects were very good. They had aged effects, um, like actual prosthetics um, that were really good, uh, produced by the guy who did the stuff for uh, Darkest Hour. He's probably considered the best in the world at it right now. Um, Honestly, there was less music in it than I expected, which was kind of surprising. And uh, that's kind of why I went. I'm a a fan of classical music. Um, So, yeah, like that. It, it it was odd, but I'm glad that I saw it. And like as as you told me when I asked you about the TIFF Bell Lightbox Theater, um, uh, they have phenomenal sound system there. Like very distinct um, uh, multi-channel sound, um, and there's some very cool sound mixing choices made in the movie. But I don't have to go into too much detail on it. Yeah, the last movie I would have seen there was Roma, and what a phenomenal That'd be a pretty experience to see there. Uh, yeah. the best sound experience I've ever had at the theater probably was Roma um, and there mm. was because that movie had so many audio channels I just remember everything there was like a dripping tap in the back corner for like mm. the first five minutes of the movie and I kept thinking something yeah. was happening in the theater um, yeah it just some crazy stuff in that theater um, I'm so happy you got to do that and uh, I'm kind of mm. mixed on whether I would even want to see Maestro I'm so so on Bradley Cooper I think he just Mm. almost seems too invested sometimes and it kind of turns me <laughs> off. Um, I think he's talented. I just, it's almost like I get it, Bradley, like you're trying really hard. Um, yeah. But he's he's pretty talented. I just prefer, I would just love to see him kind of take a chill pill and kind of do something a little like more invisible in like a movie. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's odd to say, but I think one of his greatest uh, performances remains Rocket Raccoon as as the voice in the Marvel movies. Like it's it's kind of an invisible performance. He doesn't sound like Bradley Cooper. I think he he exhibits a pretty wide range of emotions and yep. voice acting, which we talked about before, is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. And often when you get a celebrity to do a, a voice like of the Chris Pratt variety, it's kind of <laughs> just Chris Pratt. Yeah. So I no, mean, he does an a good job with thing, Raccoon. and it's odd. It's odd to say about like nine time. Uh, Oscar nominee for production, uh, Bradley Cooper, and like noted multi hyphenate at this point that like Rocket Raccoon and his role in The Hangover is still probably the things that I would hold him in highest regard for. Even though I I think A Star is Born is pretty great, and I thought Maestro was very impressive, but like something hasn't clicked yet. I'm wait, I want him to keep getting projects because I also think like he's making movies the way they probably should be made. I'd say like they're, yeah, me too. I agree. He's, he's working with great people. I had never seen the DP before who shot Maestro, and it was just a gorgeous production, and part of it was all black and white, and it was phenomenal black and white photography. So I don't I don't know. I want this movie to be successful in, in a way because I want more projects like this in a way, but I, I agree too, Taylor. Like, can we get him to do something a little bit more reserved? Um a little less showy. I don't know. It's odd yeah. to say like like a, a Bernstein, if you know anything about Bernstein, a Bernstein biopic should be showy. That's what that sure. guy was. He not was not in terms of this movie, and, just other projects. Yeah. I just want him to kind of blend in a yeah. bit more to his projects because I don't want it to mm-hmm. be like, oh, there's Bradley Cooper. It's the Bradley Cooper show. Like, look, yeah. did you know he wrote and directed this, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. I've heard that conversation like six times already. It's like, yeah. of course, everyone knows, right? And, like, um, same thing for Burnt, same thing for Star is Born. Um, it was just, like, the same reputation. And those movies, 
are clearly like very well made, very well produced, but just don't really intrigue me on a thematic level. Like Maestro probably more than the other two. Um, but well, Bur- Burnt is just a is just a straight up bad movie. Let's let's be clear. Well, this. I didn't see it, so um, I will not. Com- <laughs> I will reserve judgment. It's it's a real shame that at some point that began as like an Anthony Bourdain inspired thing, and what it becomes is like. I don't know. It verges on like, was this meant to be intentionally funny and bad? Like a takedown of basically like the other end of the spectrum from the bear. If you've watched the bear, the yeah, cook show. Um, it's one of the yeah, only shows no, I Bert, watch. It's a weird thing to land on there, <laughs> but um, well, uh, just yeah, in terms I mean, of like Bradley that, Cooper, that, like was front and center of that movie. And he was like, guess what? I spent yes. some time in, in kitchens. I learned how to do all this stuff. I like learned how to be a head chef, blah, blah, blah. You know, I just, I don't care if the movie sucks. Yeah. I will also check out our show notes. I'm not going to go into detail on it, but I'll link uh, one of my favorite jokes from Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, which is a reference <laughs> to Bradley Cooper being a multi-hyphenate. It's like every joke on that show. It's very mean, and I don't agree with it implicitly. <laughs> it's just a very well-told joke. So I'll link that. You can check it out if you want. Galifianakis is mean, but he has some funny lines. Why should he be like that? What? I'm just, why are you, why are you being mean to me? Don't be mean. Just asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's in on it and that. I think it's all good. Um, and then uh, I also caught The Holdovers, which is Alexander Payne's new movie. It's very much styled like a 70s movie. It's about um, uh, students at a boys' boarding school outside of Boston in the 70s that are, are held over because they're not going home for Christmas. And Paul Giamatti plays the crotchety old uh, Martinet who... Uh, has to watch them and they don't like each other it's very like it, it like it in their press packages they're like inspired by the likes of hal ashby and stuff like that which is fine and honestly i was a That's, little wow the marketing was so like 70s film stock look at the production look at all the doesn't it remind you of these movies we used to have i was kind of rolling my eyes at it and then I had a couple spare hours the other day, and we went and caught it, and I just had a great time. It's a really nice movie. It's got a great arc to it. Um, it, it, It's pretty much exactly what you expect, and that's why I thought I was going to walk away just being like, yeah, okay, whatever. But, like, it was was a nice movie, and it is set at Christmas. This is the right time to see it. Um, You know, Alexander Payne's got a bit of a checkered past, I'd say. I still haven't seen Downsizing because I've heard some very interesting things from people who are like, that movie got a tough shake, but I never watched it. Election, I think, is a phenomenal movie, like an undeniable um, great work. And I really like Nebraska, Did you know that was too. a criterion now? Oh, without a doubt. Like, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Uh, it's a, That's a great movie. I just didn't know it was, and then I saw it on someone's shelf, um, and I was like, whoa. And I think I saw Nebraska as a part of the Brock University film series. Yeah, here. Nebraska's great. I That's yeah. probably my favorite yeah. of his movies. So, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend The Holdovers yeah. for sure. I got a bonus recommendation based on your description of Holdovers. Um, I'm going to go way, dive way back into film history here. There's a really cool short film that I think you could probably find on YouTube. It's called Zero de Conduit. It's from, uh, give me a sec. Okay. It's from 1933, very old, by a guy named Jean Vigo. It's a short film, though, so it's 41 minutes. It's not a feature-length film. And it's about mm. uh, the education system in France at the time, like a boys' school. Um, and it's kind of 
it really opened like a lot of different perspectives up at the time because it's about these kids like misbehaving and taking advantage of their teachers and it opened up this whole like wave of rebelliousness that French New Wave ended up being based on. I love the story of this movie and I love whenever this idea of like delinquent prep school stuff comes up. I love this. I love referring to this movie. Mm. Huh. Neat. I'll have to keep that in mind, and we'll link that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, please. Uh, Tay, I did want to check because we there was a one-night-only um, showing of this next movie we want to talk about recently, and then I had to back out of seeing it because I had another thing come up, a friend's birthday that I wanted to attend. Yeah. Were you able to catch The Abyss in theaters? I was last night. I uh, I was there. Ooh. Holy smokes. Wow. Uh, it yeah. was stunning. It was so stunning. Um. I'm so excited that James Cameron is doing his 4K releases finally, and uh, that's going to be a discussion hopefully we can continue into January. But um, out of all the ones that are coming out, so it's Titanic, Aliens, both the Avatar films, um, True Lies, and The Abyss. And out of all of them, The Abyss was the most deserving of a 4K. Um, It's just such a stunning movie that you know it was filmed in 1988 so an update of something from that era that was shot immaculately at the time was going to look so good anyways and it it was such a stunning transfer i can't say enough good things about it high dynamic range in an underwater movie is so important and uh Mm. like the blacks were truly black the whites were truly white it was really cool to see Hey, that's fantastic. I'm really happy you got to catch it. I am I am sorry to have missed it, especially the odd thing where they're like, yep, just December 6th. Oh, that's and the it was only like, night, one showing, and one like showing. outside of the region. Yeah. Yeah. Like, had to drive out to, to catch it. It's That's the frustrating stuff. I yeah, mean, it was. That, that, that segues pretty well into, like, again, I could do an entire side podcast on how difficult it is to be a movie someone who wants to stay like in touch with new movies and stuff like that. Like there's, yeah. there's market difficulty itself. I understand there's a lot of money in releasing smaller art films in the area that we're in a couple hours outside of Toronto, but then there's even just quality of life problems. Um, so tonight, finally, I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Uh, I'm going to go see the boy in the heron, uh, Hayao yeah. Miyazaki's first movie in 10 years. Um, nice. I think the fourth movie now that he said is his last movie, but of course, every time he says that, it becomes more likely. Um, I've heard very little in detail about it, just that it's very big. And I think the only other thing I heard, because I kind of assumed the original title of the movie was How Do You Live? And he had described it as, I think I mentioned this on our pick three last year when we talked about what we were looking forward to. And Miyazaki had described this as essentially like a letter to his grandchildren about the fact that grandpa won't be here forever. Here's what I want you to know about me when I'm gone. Um, And I thought it was going to the impression I got was that this movie is going to be very elegiac and like calmer and smaller and maybe simpler and heartfelt. And apparently it's big and complicated and challenging and it sounds super exciting. So I can't wait to catch it. But it was a lot of work to find out when the screening would be. Yeah. Right? So yeah, in Canada, we've got, we've got a couple theater chains. The primary ones, I'd say, are Cineplex and Landmark. And I've got apps for both of them. And there is no, like, built-in functionality for, like, you go to the Boy and the Heron page, and it says, no showtimes listed yet. And it's like, okay, whatever. I understand, like, those things are pretty fluid up until a week or two before they start showing. 
Um, but there's no thing for like sign me up for updates. Um, put this on my watch list. Notify me through my phone or through email when the showtime becomes available. Wouldn't All that these be things nice? that would promote more ticket sales. Yeah, you'd think. Right? Because half the people I talk to, we've got our film club group. You and I chat about movies, me and some other friends chat about movies, and I'll mention, hey, just so you know, the Boy and the Heron tickets are up, and everyone's like, oh, cool, I didn't know, right? Or when when the, when, if, when we found the Maestro tickets, I found them through a friend's friend, who uh, through that chain, they're like, we finally found out where Maestro is playing in Canada, it's playing at one theater in downtown Toronto over the course of five days, and... And, like, there was no way you would have known that otherwise. There's no consolidated place to find that info. And and then, you know, and my other friend, I mentioned it to my roommate that, you know, do you want to go see Maestro? Because they're a fan of classical music as well. And they were like, well, isn't it going to show at Cineplex? And I'm like, maybe. There's no there's no way to know. You'll just have to wait and find out. And they're like, oh, it says releases on December whatever on Cineplex. And I'm like, that's an info page based on the press packets. Yeah. That is not, oh, it's going to come to your local theater on that day. Um, that's that's my little tiny rant. <laughs> just about like, I, the kind of thing that I hate, I hate being a part of any system where you are a subject of the system and you get the feeling that you could run the system better than the people who are running it. That, that feels like something that shouldn't happen. And... Uh, it's going to make me sound like an egomaniac, but I feel like that happens a lot as a consumer. To me, I'm like, well, I feel like if I just check these three boxes, everyone would have a better time and you'd make more money. Um, you'd think. So I, I I don't know. And so I'm doing the same things right now with um, tickets for Poor Things, um, the Yorgos Lanthimos movie, which technically releases next week and they have no listed show times anywhere. Uh, Zone of Interest, uh, which is... Um, uh, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Blazers. Uh, Jonathan Glazer's next movie has the same release date. No showtimes listed anywhere nearby or, or in Toronto itself. Um, I, I babysat the ticket page for Godzilla minus <laughs> one because our, our friend of the show and guest on the Shin Godzilla episode way back episode six or seven. Uh, Rob really wants to catch that and I'd love to see it with him because it's if you're going to see a Godzilla movie, see it with a Godzilla super fan. It'll make it better. And it was just like I basically have reminders set up in my phone every two or three days check are the boy and the heron tickets up are the godzilla tickets up things like that um yeah so it's a busy movie season i'm looking forward to catching all this stuff as soon as i know when when it's actually showing because i'd love to see poor things as own interest with you taylor that would be mm -hmm. lots of fun and in theory it should be doable but we might not get a ton of notice or it might be a two-hour drive to to go catch them unfortunately perhaps this is just me being the cynic of of this time of year because i've had this yeah. issue for so long especially when it comes to seeing mm -hmm. um an auteur like a, an international auteur like yorgos or jonathan glazer for that matter but honestly like mm -hmm. when jonathan glazer's last movie came out i barely knew who he was um for yorgos though every time i've seen this guy come out with a new movie since dogtooth which has only been a few it's been mm -hmm. really hard to track down when and where I can find them. The favorite was a little bit different because that got a bit more mainstream clout and it was in the Cineplex. And it got Oscars. So I don't yeah. I don't know why Poor Things isn't higher profile or more accessible. Well, that's right? where I'm at with this one. Like, it's like, really? Like, I thought we were past this point with Yorgos now. It's like, he's not just an art house guy. Put his movies in the theater. But then I could have said the same thing about Maestro and Bradley Cooper. I'm like, doesn't he, doesn't his name put butts in seats? I don't get it. Well, the the problem with Maestro and 
the killer and there's a third oh um oh may december just hit netflix as well that's todd haynes latest movie sorry those three movies are all netflix acquired so netflix is again i think just at the filmmaker's requirement in the detail they're like yes we'll do like a one week two week theatrical engagement we'll never tell anyone how much money it made we're not going to promote the theater stuff at all because we want people to have their first watch on our platform we want people to subscribe to watch david fincher's latest movie to watch todd haynes latest movie and it's a real disappointing thing because again had to do a lot of research and a lot of babysitting of ticket pages to get the killer tickets that we got a couple weeks ago when we went and caught it and it was a phenomenal theater experience it had great sound design right it's very subjective production all that stuff plays better in a theater um yeah sorry i will mention may december is one of my favorite movies of the year so far it's on netflix i didn't get a chance to see it um very like just an extremely compelling interesting movie about a topic you wouldn't have thought of um i'll I'll leave it at that it's just we might talk about it on pick three we'll see where it lands okay Cool. Again, we see Miyazaki's next movie, Yorgos' next movie, Jonathan's next movie. Top 10 list could completely flip um, over the next month. But um, And we will, yeah, uh, I just definitely for, recommend the, May, December. for the listeners out there, we will be doing our pick three. But um, we'll keep that pretty fluid based on, like Tim saying, we'll kind of wait to see some of these movies that we hope to fill our lists with. Um, and because mm-hmm. we just have learned from experience now that if we plan a date a lot of the movies we want to at least try and include in that debate are not going to even be available for us to see yet. So we will do our best to release that episode once we have a better scope on the year that was 2023. Yeah, it'll be sometime in the new year. But, I mean, yeah, so with that, I mean, that's probably the longest catch-up introduction we've ever had on this podcast. We could probably move closer to our topic now. As you mentioned, we're going to pick three sometime in the new year. Uh, Our second episode this month uh, will be White Christmas, which is what the audience uh, voted on last year. And we just the season got ahead of us and we weren't able to record it. So we're going to follow through on that and you'll get a White Christmas episode in two weeks. Uh, But this week we are talking about Scrooged. Uh, So Scrooge, Tay and I basically landed on this because neither of us had seen it. I may have seen it a long time ago. Some parts were familiar, but honestly, on my rewatch, it was essentially new to me. Um and it looked same. like something was interesting to dig into. And also because um, we're going to do a giveaway. So it, it should coincide with this episode dropping. But check out our Instagram. There's one of those classics. Like this post. Tag a friend. Uh, things like that. To get a copy of Scrooged on 4K. Uh, so we will send that out to you. Please go check out that post. Let your friends know. Uh, if you're a Bill Murray fan. Uh, uh, lots of lots of people. Lots of friends of the show, honestly. They really like Scrooged. Uh uh, Bunny, who was on our Fight Club episode, is a big fan. Uh, she had a pretty glowing review on Letterboxd. Uh, sounds like a tradition uh, in the household over there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you can you can get yourself a 4K copy. It's got some extra features too. It's not the most basic thing. We will mention though, uh, it's only 4K. There is no Blu-ray component, so you do need a 4K player. But uh, it it won't go bad on the shelf in between now and whenever you happen to pick up a 4K player, maybe on Boxing Day or sometime in the new year. Yeah, it does seem like uh, the 4Ks have finally ran out of DVD or uh, sorry, Blu-ray copies to give away with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not just an assumed it's going to have both of them. So yep. it is what it is, but uh, it, it looks good on 4K. I think it's a nice disc, um, but we'll dig into it. Let's uh, let's start talking about this Christmas movie. 
in case you don't know Scrooge, uh, it's a modern-day quasi-meta adaptation of Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. And it tells the story of a cynical TV executive who undergoes a transformative journey of self-discovery during the holiday season. Starring Bill Murray and Karen Allen, Scrooge was directed by Richard Donner and released November 23rd, 1988. Uh, check out where to watch it uh, in our show notes or, uh, you know, enter the giveaway and get yourself a copy and watch it that way. Uh, Scrooge did real well. Uh, it had a $32 million budget and it made $100 million. Um, I think it's like probably like a B-tier Christmas classic, I'd say. It's never, it's not in the conversation with like Home Alone and A Christmas Story and National Lampoons. But I've definitely heard about it from other people. It definitely floats around on those lists that you see online. I think it has a bit of a legacy. And uh, to yep. wrap up our, our paperwork, the tagline is, the spirits will move you in odd and hysterical ways. And I will just throw in a runner's up, a runner up and we'll return to this when we talk about Bill Murray. But uh, the other tagline I saw in most of the posters was, his first comedy since Ghostbusters. Um, so that's a, I think that's an important thing to note in terms of how they marketed this. Yeah, that's actually insane that that was on posters for a movie. <laughs> There's a lot of up implied assumptions there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like that that actually just might be a good way to break into this this movie and the idea of this production. Um it's really just like like it's a Christmas vehicle for Bill Murray or maybe even want to reverse those terms and say Bill Murray is is just like selling this concept um he contributed to the script, uh, which uh, the the co-writers who, you know, we'll have that all linked down below. I don't have them right in front of me. Um, they were guys from SNL that Bill Murray would have known. And I think that really informs sort of like some of the ideas here. But there was some original version of the script. And then um, Murray came in. He wanted to make it funnier. He wanted to focus more on the romance angle than you would have in uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which there is like a lost love in Scrooge's past. But... Um, it's not it's not as big a component of the story as Karen Allen is in this one. Yeah, um, that plot line is pretty domineering, I would say, of this story, almost to a yeah. detrimental point. Yeah, and and you know when you read up on this, you you find out that it was kind of like sound like it like it was a bit of a a checkered production. Um, yeah, that some makes issues. sense. Richard Donner and Bill Murray had sort of creative differences about how to produce a comedy, how to shoot a comedy, what the tenor of the comedy should be like. Um, I saw when I, I was scrolling through, as I do after watching the movie, other people's letterbox reviews. A lot of people were mentioning just like Bill Murray just yells a lot. You're, in this not, movie, you're staying right? here with me. We're working late. Well, I have to take my son to the doctor. Grace, when I work late, you work late. But I made the appointment two months ago. I care. We're indivisible. If I'm working late, you gotta work late. If you can't work late, I can't work late. If I can't work late, I can't work late! Like his humor, which is a, a part of his sort of comedic um, character in other movies, is sure. like sudden yelling. It's like for, uh, front and center in this, is that like something is funny because he yells it, which I mean... It's a bit of a juvenile thing, and it, I think I read that like Bill Murray. Bill Murray said that like Donner just kept telling him to do another line, but this time yell more and make it louder and make it bigger. So I'm not sure to what extent Donner had experience with comedies like this. He had shot, he made Goonies, Lethal Weapon, and Superman. Just just for some context, in case you don't know the name off the top of your head. Um, and Goonies, I, I do think and those are more successful movies, especially Superman. Well, yeah, but Goonies and Lethal Weapon, for the record, just were really 
reputable for combining comedy with other genres i would say that was Mm -hmm. like a huge strength of those films the goonies is a kids adventure film that has a lot of good humor entwined throughout it um and then lethal weapon is a great action movie with tremendous comedic timing um the characters are really Mm -hmm. lovable because they there's like good comedic action in the film um almost like kind of like a it's a novel thing now like they don't really make action comedies like lethal weapon and not to say that it it wasn't advertised as a comedy but there's good banter good humor in that movie proving that donner can do Mm -hmm. this kind of thing given the right tools to work with it really seemed like bill murray and him having like the the collision that they did have on set it did seem to be detrimental to this production because bill murray can be very funny in a lot of movies doing exactly this character in this bit Richard Donner has clearly proven he can direct movies of this ilk uh, so something is mm. wrong about this connection and maybe it's the script maybe it's like a poor choice uh, on Bill Murray's part I just found that not a lot worked in terms of the production on this movie and not even like not knowing the background you can just tell there's uh, the editing is very at odds with itself at times, and it almost seems to lack direction as to, like, okay, how are we leading into the next scene? What's happening next? It just seems like a lot of, yeah. okay, now this needs to happen or else we're not going to get this plot point taken care of. Yeah, it does feel like they have a roadmap of A Christmas Carol, right? You've got your, like, your intro ghost and your three ghosts, and you got to check those boxes, and... We're not really going to work on, like, making that dialogue fit or those themes coherent. And then in, in between, you'll punctuate with, like, let's have Bill do something funny. Let's have Bill do something funny here. And, like, sometimes, like, my shout-out is one instance. It's a very – it's a throwaway thing, and I think it's one of the funniest things in the movie, and I'll, I'll get to that later. But, like, sometimes, you yeah, you can tell that they – shot a bunch of stuff they did something probably they did something more donner's way and then they did something more murray's way and then they're like we'll figure it out in the edit and you can feel the edit pulling these things together that are like magnetically opposed right you can't really get them to touch or make make contact and the edit's just doing its best to try to make something coherent and it's it's actually i think this is a very illustrative movie of of that idea of like where often people are like we're not really sure about what we're we're getting on the day, but like we'll put it together in the final yeah. product, which yeah. happens fairly often. And this is a great example of that because I think if you're paying attention, you can really see it happening, right? You 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 can you can feel that lack of like planning and whether that's you know storyboarding or I feel like the script was probably a bit of a patchwork thing at the end and it had a loose thread from an earlier version and something like that. And I also think like getting getting you know comedy writers especially sketch comedy writers to adapt a christmas carol they're gonna do it at the level that like you see a spoof on snl where exactly. it's basically just like what if you took this but wouldn't it be funny if you put this into that and we'll talk about that in our scene but i, I think in the end and you know maybe we're being kind of like scrooges about this because like there's so many people that i know who who enjoy this movie and obviously people have a lot of fun with it if you don't take it too seriously, but it, I found it kind of hard to look past some stuff like that. Like I Me watched too. it with my, my housemate and at the end, at the end, she just said, she was like, that was just like chaotic. She's like, just chaos. And has this very uneven feeling to the whole thing. I think your point about the sketch writers is 
pretty apt for this discussion because it does feel like it's almost like, hey, you know what would be funny if Bill Murray did this? Now how do we put that in the movie? How do we get that gag in? Or like yeah. a lot of the humor, and I, I'll use air quotes for humor, um, revolved around like physicality and almost like a Three Stooges level kind of barrage of physical comedy. It was like, oh, you don't want to do that? Well, I'm going to pull on your ear and hurt you, and now you're going to do it. And it, it, I felt like a lot of it was like masochistic in that way. No, Frank. I'm the ghost of Christmas present. Oh, I had a funny feeling. And that is a very dated yeah, Carol, form of Carol comedy. Carol Kane's ghost of Christmas present, like, it does feel like they're like, okay, what is the juice of this ghost interaction, right? Because, like, the ghost of Christmas past, you've got sort of this function of his his cab is a time machine and the fare yes. yep. meter is, like, shows the year. And, like, again, fairly surface level, but there's something very tactile and you kind of like seeing the effects work. Yep. And the guy who played the ghost Christmas past, who's a musician, whose name I don't have in front of me, he's just got a great face and there's some great effects going on, too, all the smoke pouring out of his cab. It's like Benicio Del Toro. To to the Carol Kane... Yeah, yeah. And then when you get to the Carol Kane Ghost of Christmas Present, it does feel like they're like, what's the juice of this scene? And they're like, what if she just beats the crap out of him well, it's the entire like time? The whole nature of the conversations between her and Frank, Bill Murray's character, are, I don't want to do that. And then she's like, well, I'm going to hurt you. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to yell. Mm-hmm. And now, all right, I'll do it. It's like, I get, okay, like, the, it just doesn't do anything for me as like a, plot point and like i want to feel emotionally invested in something in this movie and not one character is likable um to the point where like i feel like i can even respect the characters in the movie then none of the interactions are even that rewarding so i I just don't know what to really cling on to for big chunks of this movie other than the occasional like thing that would make me like chuckle a little bit that bill murray does i was touched by a gift a four-year-old kid receives what in today's marketplace is a 40 or $50 piece of milk-fed veal. And I didn't even find his role that funny. Well, and I it definitely... was more like masochistic, like I was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like there's... You definitely see these seeds of, I think, good ideas, especially in terms of you're going to say, okay, let's do a 1980s New York corporate setting of the Scrooge tale. And Which like, I like. I like, I like the that. idea that... Um, you know he's given he's given a humanitarian award, right? And I, I like the idea that yeah, Scrooge today, as a rich man, would be celebrated for being a rich man. Whereas in Dickensian Victorian London, it's really just people are just like he's just selfish. He's got his own fortune. He doesn't want to give it away. It is what it is. But like now today, like you know Reagan America, like we celebrate people like that, and he can he can be given those kinds of awards. Um, and then I, I just I also just think this movie has a bit of identity crisis in that update where you go from Scrooge essentially doesn't like Christmas in a Christmas Carol in the original he doesn't like Christmas because he's not generous he doesn't want to give away and especially at that time in that age Christmas was really just an act of generosity you gave to the poor you gave to each other you gave more to your employees you give them a bonus things like that it's really just like that is the function of it is uh is is being generous and i like the idea that in scrooged frank cross 
loves Christmas because it's so commercial. And you're like, hey, that's a great inversion. Let's, how does that play out? How does he realize that Christmas shouldn't be commercial? Kind of never happens, right? Yeah, and in exactly. Fact, I'd say the oddly, cyn- the, like the cynical take on this movie, like the big brain, you know, cracked 2006, you know, the secret meaning of Scrooged article is that <laughs> Frank Cross does not learn a lesson. He learns how to use um, like emotional catharsis to make an even more effective Christmas Eve broadcast, right? Like in the end, he gives this like weird chaotic kind of manic diatribe on live tv yeah he mentions like who is the guy who scheduled like a live broadcast on christmas eve sort of touching on the idea that all these people had to work when he could have given them the night off um but then he doesn't send anyone home i don't think he gives anything to anyone except he orders champagne for everyone at the set but he only serves to increase the value of the ad spots on that broadcast you know like if you were watching you know chris a christmas carol live on nbc whatever and then a tv exec came on and started losing his mind in real time you're not turning that off it's a night you've got a party hardy marty look at this check this out whoa don't be so mean Uh, look at this there's a rule there's a tradition that says i have to kiss this girl on the lips well She's just upholding the law. It's a federal law, actually. It's not just a state thing. That's becoming a more valuable broadcast, and they're going to sell more stuff. You're not, you're not going to turn that off until 2 in the morning. You want to yep. see what's going to happen. That's great TV. And then on the meta level, this movie sells Tab Cola. It sells Stoli Vodka. It has Bacardi. a whole bunch of ad placements. So, like, yeah, Bacardi, like, it, Bacardi by name. Right. I don't mind you hitting me, Frank, but take it easy on the Bacardi. So I don't I don't I don't really know what we're doing here because this movie had this nugget of like the the modern day Scrooge loves Christmas for its commercial value, which is could be inherently selfish because it will make him richer. But I don't I also don't think it's made clear that Frank Cross is trying to be richer. I think he's trying to be good at his job, which is harder to. Yeah, a little harder to decipher there. Like, yeah, what is his true motivation? It's like clearly monetary and material but other than that like i really have a hard time actually pinning it down to something and then like you're saying i have a hard time figuring out like what the actual resolution is who in any sense of realism would actually like be like all right you know what this guy is like doing this diatribe on live tv he's probably all right after all the stuff i've seen him do yeah whatever no one is thinking that um, we watched this. We watched Frank be a piece of shit through the whole movie and treat everybody horribly, and literally make every scene kind of just more miserable. Which I guess is the point of a Scrooge character. So trust me, that's not lost on me. But there's nothing redemptive. Yeah. Or there's nothing to redeem, especially when it comes to his relationship with uh, with Karen Allen's character Claire, where she just seemingly is like all bright eyed at everything he does even though like they are at odds with everything on a generosity level. Yeah, Karen Allen is extremely underserved by this not well-written character who is just waiting for Frank Cross to be like, actually, I do want to be with you. Yeah. And like to the extent that in the end, he doesn't come help her at the homeless shelter. Nope. He calls her away from it. She leaves that 
higher calling, that generous spirit, and goes on a live broadcast where he's like, I do love you. And she's like, great, uh, Lumpy, I'm here. I'll give, I'll give up the like. The, <laughs> the conclusion to Christmas Carol is like he buys the big turkey. He promotes Bob Cratchit. He gives him more money. Um, he gives to the poor. He becomes generous of spirit. All these things. The conclusion of this is he puts on a better broadcast, calls Karen Allen away from her more important work. I don't think he gives to anyone. He incites the you know, a tiny Tim character to speak. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, <laughs> I just like, I, I think when you start doing the math, nothing adds up. I think if you are sitting in like a warm living room with your friends drinking like mulled wine or a Guinness or hot chocolate or whatever, and enjoying like some Christmas cookies, this movie's probably a blast. There are a lot of stuff that, that made me laugh. I, I think like I think it's a really really flawed script, and uh, I I don't want to harp on it too much longer. And also, I have more points that apply to our scene when we're going to harp on it a little bit longer and talk about some of its strengths. I completely agree. I just I wish that I had kind of been in a more Christmassy spirit watching this actually, or a bit more maybe like joyful because I really had a hard time kind of figuring out what I was supposed to find entertaining about this movie. Um, from a production mm. standpoint, there's some really amazing yeah, and, effects. And then, I mean, I think, yeah. But um, I and, and those got me excited when they would come on screen. Um, but I'm a huge Bill Murray fan, and this is one of my least favorite. This might be my least favorite of all the performances I've ever seen him give. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't rank well. And I mean, the other problem is, of course, at the time, it could not apply. But in retrospect, the big issue is that. Almost all of this is done better in Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day <laughs> yes. is an extremely yep. well-told arc of Bill Murray playing a bad, selfish guy and learning that other people matter and that he can be more generous with his time, with his attention, with his money. He can make the lives of everyone better around him. Groundhog Day is essentially a Scrooge tale. It's a super. It's a, a bad person who, under supernatural settings, understands that he can make the world a better place. Like... That that's yep. either a Christmas Carol or it's Groundhog Day, so like in retrospect, it's insane that you would ever pick one over the other. Um, and and really like does not does not do do any any good for Scrooge uh, at in terms of the legacy of this type of story and for Bill Murray playing that character. Yeah, I, if um, you compare those two side by side, it's night and day difference. Like Groundhog Day has so much structure and meaning behind every decision and every actor decision even bill murray does a lot of great work in that movie Mm -hmm. like with his subtlety whereas scrooge is like people have been saying it's a lot of yelling why not well specifically you can see her nipples i want to see her nipples yeah i think honestly i think like scrooge probably would have been better um directed by ivan reitman like groundhog day i think he's way better suited to this type of material again I'm a big fan of Richard Donner. Lethal Weapon's tons of fun. I think Superman is like lightning in a bottle. Everything involved there. They've tried to do Superman so many times. They've tried to move away from Richard Donner's Superman style. I think I heard the next one they're doing is they're moving back towards it. They want to do something uplifting and heartfelt. Good luck, man. Like without Christopher Reeve, without Donner, um, that's going to that's gonna be a tough, uh, a tough bag. Yeah, um, I guess to put a cap on the whole Richard Donner part of this movie, 
I feel like we have enough evidence from his other films that he can edit a movie, he can direct a movie, and he knows how to direct his actors pretty well. So there just seemed to be something wrong with this or flawed with this production. And it couldn't it could have been on Donner's end, it could have been on Murray's end, I don't know. But you can just see with some of the messy editing that this was a real hodgepodge to kind of pull together. And that might have been a huge part of what I was mm-hmm. noticing in terms of like my lack of ability to connect with the script or the characters too. Yeah, I mean, with that, let's talk about some of the strengths and then we'll get back into a little bit more of my uh, my analysis of the Christmas Carol uh, adaptation by, uh, by moving into our scene. So, yeah, for our scene today, we are going to do one of our one of the four ghostly experiences. The first one uh, between Frank and his boss and the scene takes place at 1805. It goes to about 2420. Now, Tim, I did include the last half or the last chunk of the scene where after he falls out the window, they come back to the room, the office space, and the phone rings to Claire's number just because it felt like still in the same scene. Um, So in this scene, working late the night before Christmas Eve, Frank encounters the fully formed ghostly presence of his old boss, Lou Hayward, who acts as a harbinger, warning Frank that he will be visited by three Christmas ghosts in true Dickensian spirit. That was a good one. How are you, kid? You were... Uh, would you excuse me? I'll make myself a little drink. Yeah, so this, I mean, this is your this is your Jacob Marley. This is the guy who, who sets the stage. Uh, I think it is important to note something we didn't touch on is that in the universe of Scrooge, Frank Cross is producing a live version of A Christmas Carol, like a live broadcast, so they know the story. And I don't think he ever mentions that, like, when this guy shows up, he's like, you'll be visited by three ghosts. There's never, like, a, oh, I know this. Yeah, right? exactly. Or, like, That's so weird. They don't really pay meta attention, which Wait. is kind of odd. Yet they continuously maybe, like, call attention to the you know? fact that this text, it, this text exists in the world. So it just, mm-hmm. once again, I don't, what? <laughs> um, it could, maybe the wise take is that they're, like, he's not paying attention to the story to the degree of what he's producing he's just looking for the commercial aspects he doesn't even know because like it kind of makes it like odd that like with the ghost of christmas future he's so shocked by the the uh the nature of his death the the fact of his of his mortality and you're like well if you're if you know a christmas carol you know that's what the ghost of christmas future is about um in, right, in so, a way. So it, it's it's kind of it's kind of odd. Yeah. So it could be pointing to the character of Frank's ignorance towards the script that he's yeah. literally producing. But in that's if that's the mm-hmm. case then there should have been a point of tension there. Like have him misunderstand yeah. a part of what they're actually producing uh on stage and then that would give you mm-hmm. all the indicator in, indications you need that okay, so the Dickens text exists in this world but Frank hasn't read it. But that's not ever made clear mm-hmm. or anything. Which so. is which is interesting, but not yeah, not developed. So we picked this scene because uh, I think it's a great display of one of the movie's biggest strengths, which are its physical effects. Um, has some really good work with the ghosts in this one. Some very cool ideas that are very well produced. And I think I watched the uh, the 4K version, and it uh, plays extremely well. This kind of thing where you always wonder, like, you make physical effects in the 80s, earlier 70s, 60s. And then when they're seen in high definition, are you going to see, like, spirit gum, tape, bad things holding it together? And the more detail on these, the better. They look great. 
So we really like how Lou Hayward looks in this scene. He is like a full on like dusty corpse, right? He's not he's not one of he's not one of your soggy corpses, right? He's been dead long enough. He's a dusty corpse. Yeah, which is a really nice change from the usual aesthetic we see for things like this or depictions like this. Um, I also should say it's pretty humorously played by John Forsythe. Um, I think it's one of the funnier mm. parts of the movie, just the fact that he is trying to have a normal conversation with <laughs> with Frank. And just the fact that he's not addressing anything weird about it. That, you know, like it's probably an overdone comedy beat, but at least like that that works for me. Like I was like, oh, I see what the the pros of this comedy would be. Mm-hmm. Unlike a lot of the Yeah, movie. no, I, I, I think it's I Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think it plays well. Um like I think I think maybe we just run through because like this is this is the Jacob Marley episode of A Christmas Carol, right? He comes to basically tell him, "You you will end up like me if you don't change your ways." Um, and to drive that point home, three ghosts will visit you. Make sure make sure you know that they're coming. They will come at these times. Sets up the framework for the story. Sets up some tension where Scrooge knows at this hour, at this hour, at this hour another ghost is coming and each one gets worse in one way shows him more that he doesn't like and he fears the next one even more so i think i think like i'd be very surprised if our listeners anyone listen to the episode at this point after our half hour you know recap of the movie season and then and then when we sort of like just started uh ripping on this movie if you're still listening be very surprised if you're not familiar with the christmas carol there's so many great adaptations out there it's a very popular story um so I don't think we have to run through what actually happens in the scene too much, but I think like just a cataloging of these great effects before we even see Lou Hayward. I love that almost in like Looney Tunes fashion, the door has two distinct qualities to it that both serve different purposes. So, um, you know, there's knocking at the door and Frank Cross is saying like this office is closed. This wing is closed. It gets louder and he gets more worried. And there are like, like outlined like fist marks knuckle punches in the door which is like taking them on because it's metallic and then when lou hayward explodes the door fantastic practical explosion with like wood chips everywhere and i like that yeah in one shot the door is metal because you want to be able to see those knuckles in the next shot it's wooden because you want a good explosion makes no sense and it doesn't have to it's the right choice no, I, I love it for its practicality and the effects look so good in this moment. Um, mm-hmm. To just take a bit of attention away from the effects for a second, I really like what the scene is actually doing for Frank. I just wish that the scene was followed up with more of a a build, like a like a more typical arc for a character because this scene really sets up Frank mm. as a nasty, a selfish, pompous person. And in a number of humorous ways. So it's actually doing what I thought the movie should be doing in this scene, which is Bill Murray Mm. kind of acting tough at first, but then he's clearly like genuinely very scared. So like he's showing that he's, it's like kind of, he's putting on a show for himself almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he feels empowered by his gun, which is, of course he would. Um, And then distinctly eighties American. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, and then even when Lou comes in and starts pouring himself a drink, Frank still is like, oh, I got this still. I still have the one up on this guy who mysteriously burst through my door. 
um, and he starts like unloading on him, just kind of like laughing, saying like. None of that obviously works, and but all of this is like really nice setup to like how ignorant this character is. But after the scene, it should have like something needed to start changing about Frank as a character, um, not further relishing in his shittiness as a human being. And I thought that this scene really nicely yeah. sets this up just from like him feeling like him showing like signs of weakness. I mean, he treats his secretary terribly. And the first thing he does when the door starts getting pounded in is he call he yells for her. He yells for help. This, office is this whole wing is closed. Grace! Grace! Yeah. And I, I love that. Like that's, that's, that's showing a dynamism in a character. You're giving me like all these humorous elements, and he's also like weak, putting on a show for like show. I, I don't know. I like all. I like how complicated he is at this point. Mm. Yeah, I think Cross as Scrooge in this scene definitely works. He does the job. Like he's he's combative. Well he's in denial. Um, they. I love the update. So in the in the in the book in the original story, he says that like. Jacob, you're just a vision brought on like a bad by a bad bit of cheese or like some undigested food. You're nothing. It was like one of the funniest lines Dickens ever wrote where he says there's more there's more to you of gravy than there is the grave, um, which <laughs> is just like such a such a slam. And I like in this one where he's like he's like your hallucination brought on by vodka, Russian vodka, uh, poisoned by Chernobyl. Another like great 80s reference. Right. Like it's right there. Um my real issue with the scene and its writing is that Lou is not a good Jacob Marley because you can see where, like, again, not to rag on these guys, but, like, the SNL sketch approach to this is, like, what if Jacob Marley was, like, his dead successful boss who clearly died on the golf course? He's in his golf clothes. We'll do a golf ball bit. You know, um, his chains, instead of Jacob Marley's chains, he's got his golf clubs, um, which isn't really fleshed out. And you can see where the, sh the the scene turns on a dime from being, let's do all the dead boss gags. And then now we have to check this Scrooge box where he goes, he goes, look to your future. You'll wind up the same as me. And it's like, wait, what do you mean the same as you? Like, actually, what is he? Is he saying you'll wind up dead? Because, yeah, everyone will. Jacob Marley makes it clear that he's his afterlife whatever it is whether it's hell or purgatory or whatever you want to say it is he's saying it's worse for him because of how he conducted his life yeah. he literally says i wear the chains i forged in life saying i am being punished i or or i am i feel more personally responsible now that i can see the sum of my life and this guy's like you'll wind up the same as me and it's like he never explains that like my my life i am worse off because i was selfish he just says i should i should have given to charity mankind should have been my business and he never explains why mankind should have been his business no nope. so it's very surface level extremely like lip service approach to what is the sort of the core idea and it's what motivates most of the story of a christmas carol which is that like you only have so much time on earth. The better you do, the better you are, the better you will be. The fewer chains you'll wear in the afterlife, wh however you want to take that metaphor, whether it is divine punishment or 
guilt that you carry as a specter or unfinished business as a ghost that's kept around because he did not because he caused more hurt than he did joy you know and they don't none of that is they don't figure it a way into that and i actually don't think it'd be that difficult i think a couple more passes on the script you could get this guy explaining that like again the, the golf clubs could be chained to him or they can make some joke that like he could yes, never hit yeah. below below an 88 on the course or it's always raining like very stupid yeah they could have added a nice would have made that clear you're right all right so yeah. i think it's a yeah. real failure of adaptation there because he just starts saying like don't be like me and frank's like you were great at your job like you had money and power women he's like i shouldn't have and it's like okay why man make an argument here convince me and he doesn't and it's not like we have any kind of history between these two characters so all of the implied history has to happen in this interaction right here and mm. i'm a little conf confused as to what the relationship was like because i kind of read the scene partially as bill murray is kind of like freaked out and just assuming this is a hallucination so he's kind of just like yeah sure like okay buddy uh, I'll listen to what you're saying, but I'm just like looking at my watch waiting for you to be done. Luke comes in. He's like, I was your best friend. <laughs> he's like, uh, yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I was like, so and I do is, like that you yeah, do see him later something? in some of the Ghosts of Christmas present flashbacks. You see long hair of Frank Cross and you do see his boss around and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. it's a little bit, you know, it's too little too late. And I just like, I don't, I don't blame Frank for not heeding his words because i don't think sure. he makes a good argument right it's very it's very scattered and it's not well justified whereas you know in a christmas carol jacob marley makes a great argument and then as soon as he leaves scrooge scrooge is like yeah i was i was seeing things that's fine the, the first ghost isn't gonna come and there's no reason for frank like and then frank like wakes up you know at the end of this and he and he and he you know calls uh calls karen allen but um yeah i just i i, I feel like they they just wrote the scene. They're like, yeah, good enough. Uh, Frank will or uh, Bill will flesh it out with some comedy and we'll have these great effects and that'll be fine. And you end up with something a little hollow. But, hollow um, for sure. But hollow kind of like lose head in that one great stunt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love you, you could see a mouse push a golf ball out of a. Uh, a zombie golfer's head that's fantastic yeah it's really great because right? the the edit there is really terrific you know that's clearly like a good mm -hmm. sign of like oh i know how to cut this so hey mm -hmm. looking <laughs> looking at you donner like he he knew how to direct this yeah. moment and uh it's probably because bill murray was not in the scene when like yeah well yeah when the, basically they have like a locked off shot of the back of a puppet and yeah. then I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they how they were prompting that mouse to go through whatever tube they had hooked up to that to that hole in the back and push the golf ball out. I don't even know, like on a logistical level, like why is a mouse pushing a golf ball out of its head? Right? Is was it in the mouse? I don't know. It's I don't know what the motivation mouse. for the mouse is as a character. But very clean mouse. <laughs> the mouse is is remarkably clean. I thought the mouse would be more dusty, personally. Yeah. Um, but it's then, a it's a fun little bit. It's it's a it's a cool effect, and they and they get to do they do just sort of like a grab bag of like zombie effects in this uh, in this scene, and they're all they're all fun. Well, if if any effect was like actually challenging for me to figure out, it was actually the window scene. I really am curious to see how they did that part. Uh, to end the scene, mm. the ghost of Lou here will 
uh, grabs Frank and pushes him through the window, like without the glass breaking, like he just kind of squishes him through yeah. the glass and then holds him through the, like, uh, through the glass on the other side over like, you know, a hundred stories. And that moment is so great. I just don't know how they did the effect of Bill Murray going through the glass like that. It, it looked very, uh, very ahead of its time. Like that's quite an effect. Like very yeah, Casper. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure. Like which element? Yeah, which element was that? Where? What was a plate and what wasn't? What was sort of blue screened around? Because there is like this sort of blue haloing effect mm-hmm. over his body as he goes through the glass. But it's great and like it, it, it's it physically like there's a there's a great sort of um, real tactile sense of of fear where he's lit. Yes, he, you actually, know, he conducts all his business in this office. He's way up high, and he's so safe in there. Like it's. Again, speaking to something about like these guys of power, this business, you know how high up they are, and he immediately like the the safety glass is nothing, and he he's held above it, and then you get these great, great effects where um, Lou's arm starts breaking under the weight, and you see like the dusty sinewy parts of it and his bones, and this great foley work of like you know like celery being like cracked in half near a microphone. Yeah, uh, it, it's good stuff. I really like it. Yeah, you see his like forearm fo- like falling apart, and the effects on there were really great. Mm-hmm. Um, the ulna and the radius, those two bones like just kind of snapping. Yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. I like that. Right on. Um, and then uh, that guy knows his anatomy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the other thing I really like about this moment is that we get another like selfish, like, another like point of selfishness from Frank's character where he says. Oh, don't do that. People will think I, I, I committed suicide. And it's like, geez, like even in this moment, all he's thinking about is like how he, he looks to other people. And it's like a very uh, yeah. materialistic view of himself, even though he's like actually fearing mm-hmm. his life. That's his thought. It's it's very telling. And actually, I think it's moments like this that I really wish they like kind of bit into a bit more because that's like really a character bit that I'm interested in hearing more about. I want to hear how selfish he is. And I should be like so consumed by his selfishness that when the movie chooses to start redeeming his arc, that I actually feel it, because it just that's the part that's lacking is after this scene, which I think is a nice setup for our character Frank, even though this scene is like has its moments of weakness, but there needed to be something after the scene that was kind of like okay, now we're gonna start giving you reasons to cheer for this character or like giving you like just fractions of something that you can mm-hmm. like actually like cheer for. Yeah, I think you're right. Like this, this, this scene is important. It's uh, it's sort of your inciting incident for the Christmas Carol arc of this story, and I I think it's pretty checkered. And then you're right; it's also just not used well right immediately after it. It doesn't get that 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 gas that you need to pr- to push the rest of the story forward. Um, but it does have some great effects and and, and a couple fun gags. So that's I mean that's why that's why we want to talk about it today. Yeah, really great effects. Um, we didn't even mention, like, the gunshots by Bill Murray are even really good. Um, like, just done mm-hmm. classic 80s and 90s style. Like, they actually used, like, little explosion or little mm-hmm. explosives to emulate the shots. And uh, that's it's so nice to see that when you're used to now seeing so much CG and not very loud bangs when you hear, like, a gun go off sometimes. Uh, this was, like, refreshing. Mm-hmm. So... Some of the, the really great 80s effects entering into this movie kind of really boost it. But overall, I felt it was like a bit of a disappointing viewing uh, just because based on my love of 
Bill Murray. Um, I will never say that I'm a huge Dickens fan, but at the same time, like I don't have really anything against a Christmas Carol. Uh, yeah, overall, I just was a little disappointed, I'd say, by the movie's lack of direction. Yeah, me too. I don't know. It, it may have become clear over the course of this episode and how much I yelled. I am a big fan of Christmas Carol. Um, that's something that definitely my my dad instilled in me. He's, he's a big fan of all of Dickens' works. And um, I, I really like Christmas Carol. I think it's a very powerful story. I think it's been adapted in different ways to great effect many times. And I, I think this movie could have really been one of those. And it yeah. just doesn't feel like the, the work was put in at the script level. And then it, I, I don't... I don't um, you know, I don't judge anyone for for having a hard time working with Bill Murray because apparently that can be difficult. And he was kind of at the height of his powers coming off of Ghostbusters and exactly. he's trying to come back. And I'm sure he's a very controlling presence on set. Um, but it undoubtedly has its fun moments and its fun components. And we're going to shout out some of those right now. Um, I, mine's very simple. It's what it's just a gag that they do. And you could fit it into almost any movie. It's not even like particularly brilliant or anything like that. It just made me laugh, and I really like it. It's one of the things I'm going to remember about this movie for a long time, and it's where Frank Cross is trying to talk to Karen Allen uh, the first time she shows up at the studio after they call, um, have their call, and uh, he's trying to talk to her, and he's on the set of the Christmas Carol production, and every time he's about to try to say something more meaningful to her, all the hammering in the sound mix gets louder and louder and more busy, and he has to start keep yelling, would you please hold the hammering? And it happens like three times. It made me laugh every time. I, th- I thought it was a great bit. And it's really just sold on like funny sound editing and Bill Murray being angry. Um, and I just think it just works. I wanted to shout out because, again, I knew I was going to be fairly negative on this movie. And I, I wanted to say that it's just a funny moment. I had a couple shout outs, honestly, and I had to, I had to yeah. whittle them down. But I, I really liked it. I like this moment, too, because it's one of those rare instances where I actually wanted to hear what he was going to say because he actually sounded like something nice was going to come out of his mouth, but then it's turned down because he yeah. gets so frustrated. So uh, on multiple mm-hmm. levels, I thought this this beat worked really well for comedic timing, um, Bill Murray performance, and it kind of uh, does something for the audience too. So good shout out. Mm-hmm. Um, my shout out is uh, the fact, I don't know if you knew this, but Bill Murray's two brothers are in this fi- film, or sorry, three, three brothers. Um, he has one brother playing uh, his actual brother in the film. Uh, Who is, I'd say, the least known Murray brother playing his actual brother. Yes, and that's his brother. Um, in the film, his brother's name is James. I can't get, I don't know what his brother's actor's name is. I can't remember that Murray's name off the top of my head because I know we've also got, I know the other two. Yeah, because it's Joel Murray is a random party guest. And then Brian mm-hmm. Doyle Murray is actually plays like young Frank's father in the Ghost of Christmas Past scene. Yeah. Um, so Bill Murray and, and his he's also three with brothers, him in Groundhog Day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really funny that his three brothers made it into this movie, and um, I was kind of like wondering who his brother was. Like the whole movie, I was like, who is this actor? I've never seen this guy. He's definitely like the prettiest Murray. Yes. Um, and to the Oddly. extent that I was like, because you can kind of see like, oh, I definitely can see that Joel and Bill are brothers. And Brian Doyle Murray, like I just remember someone told me that and you could kind of see it. But they also, their ages always play pretty wide. Yeah. Um, Brian Doyle Murray and Bill Murray. Um, 
but yeah the guy who plays actual brother the unnamed fourth murray our apologies um he uh he look i think he looks the least like the others but i think i thought he did a good job i liked him as sort of like honestly like um that character in a christmas carol is one of like the shallowest characters that are there he's just kind of like a nice guy who loves his brother even though his brother's an asshole and just wants him to be happy and it's it's very one note in a very necessary way in that story and i think he does the job here i think he's a nice guy it's just kind of funny it almost feels like bill murray asked his brother to just do it because like yeah you're it's my brother who else is going to play the role um and uh again with a had a lot of sway a lot of cachet and he brought his whole family into this movie i mean that's what it feels like um and for the record his brother who plays his uh james in the movie is named john murray just to make that point clear we have to mention joel bill and brian doyle yes you got it um okay and then moving into our recommendations i did not pick one specifically christmas related because i was going to mention Mm -hmm. the two movies that i am so high on around christmas time right now which is eyes wide shut which we already talked about and i was going to mention the Mm -hmm. abyss just because you should all be looking out for this movie in 4k and trying to find it over the holiday season it is a wonderful movie and any all ages can watch it i would say so Mm. highly highly recommend well there's your your re-recommendation for for two yeah re-recommendation for two great movies uh, and mine's nice and simple, just as a nice palate cleanser. It's something that I wanted after I watched Scrooge. And if Scrooge <laughs> doesn't quite land for you, then uh, definitely check out A Muppet Christmas Carol. It is a great adaptation of the story, of its themes. It's great performances, great effects with the Muppets themselves. And it's extremely funny. Um, you know, like uh, they make they make the joke that Jacob Marley's brother, uh, is his name is uh, Bob. And it's just a throwaway. And they never talk about it again. <laughs> and it's just it's it's the Muppets. It's fantastic. Yeah, uh, it has great music. Michael Caine, like you, you can't go wrong. It's probably the best adaptation if you're going for non non like conventional ones. Right. Like the Alistair Sims is the is the classic. You can watch that whole thing on YouTube. There's your little seek, sneaky second recommendation. I'll link that below. Um, but yeah, definitely check it out. And uh, yeah, with that, uh, keep an eye on our Instagram and please uh, join the giveaway to get a 4K copy of Scrooge. You can check out some behind the scenes on that and watch it. In, like uh, honestly, a great transfer. You can see the effects uh, put on in this movie in great detail. Uh, we'll be giving that way uh, in the week after this episode drops. So it's live right now. Go check it out. Um, keep an eye out for our White Christmas episode in two weeks. And another thing, if you, you know, if say you've gone through change of heart, you want to be more generous, just like uh, Frank Cross and Ebenezer Scrooge, and you want to do us a solid, uh, we haven't asked in a while, but go on to wherever you get your podcast from, especially if you get them from the iTunes, uh, iTunes, from Apple Music, iTunes isn't thing anymore, <laughs> that's how old I am. If you get them from Apple Music, things like that, or Spotify, if, if you review and rate our podcast, it does a lot to boost our profile. Um you give a star rating, you write one sentence about why you like it or just like what it is. Like if there's something, if you listen to us for a reason that other movie podcasts don't fulfill, if there's a certain type of insight or a framework of how we look at things, if you want to note it there, if you want to get chat GPT to just write you a little, tell them you like the podcast because of this. Can you put that in a sentence? Throw that into a review. It'd be a, it'd be a huge help to us. It would it would uh, boost our uh, our profile and get more listeners, so we can uh, we can 
start promoting the love movie to even more people. So we'd really appreciate that. Yeah, we hope uh, all you listeners out there have a great Christmas. Uh, you will hear our voices one more time before uh, the 25th, but um, for whatever holidays you celebrate out there, um, happy holidays from both Tim and I. Um, keep listening, and uh, we love hearing from our listeners, so please feel free to message us throughout the holiday season. Absolutely. We hope you get in the holiday spirit and uh, get some Christmas movies in, some holiday movies, uh, whether it's stuff like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or something more conventional like White Christmas. Uh, but we'll catch you in a couple weeks to talk about that.